You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, Al Martin here. Welcome to Making Data Simple, yet another version of the best podcast out there, at least in my opinion. Today I've got Patrick Campbell. He's the CEO of ProfitWell. I, I, I understand it's formally price intelligently, so I don't know. You'll have to tell me about that, that, Patrick. But this is the software for helping subscription companies with their monetization and retention strategies. Welcome, Patrick. I'm glad, very, very appreciative of having you on. So thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm pumped to be here, especially since you're from Kansas City. So now I'm, all I'm thinking about is barbecue now. Yeah, we were talking, for those that are listening, we were talking about barbecue before we joined. I always have an appreciation for anyone else that has appreciation for Kansas City and, and, and barbecue. And your favorite one was, what? I think it was Kansas City Joe's. I think that's what Yeah, it was. Kansas City Joe's. It's in, for those of you who don't know, it's in a gas station. So you go up to it and you're like, is this the right place? And then it's delicious, the best thing ever. That's where it, that's where it started, and I think they have some everywhere. some some upscale dining areas as well. And, and one of my other favorites is Q39, but I'm not here to pimp those <laughs> those bar, but they're good, very good. So thank you for that. Uh, what are we doing in Kansas City, by the way? I might as well just keep on the theme. Yeah, we were uh, so we we have customers and prospects and you know fun folks all over the world. In uh, Kansas City, in particular, we were filming and interviewing a bunch of founders and, and CEOs in the area that were uh, SaaS and subscription companies um, for some content that we were producing. And so uh, we held a little meetup as well. And yeah, it was just great. Kansas City ecosystem. Um, it's one of those places when you're on the coast. We're based in Boston. You don't really think about Kansas City as a tech hub. And then when you get there, you're like, oh, Garmin's here, Sprint's here, all these other places are there, which is pretty cool. Dude, I now I'm a fan. See, that's all you had to do. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> very good. Very well. So let's talk a little bit about ProfitWell. And I'll give you the description, but I want you to, to, to state it back to me. I know that you provide free turnkey subscription financial metrics for over 8,000 companies. You know, I, I think you led strategic. Oh, can't talk today. You led strategic initiative for Boston-based Jim Barra, and yep. well, this is an interesting one. That I'll have to break down. You were an economist at Google, and in the U.S. intelligence community. I don't know. I'll let you. That's what I know about you. You've got a huge history. I want to hear about it. By the way, everybody's got a CEO, I, a name or acronym next to him now. I, I feel like uh, my VP title is just not good enough anymore. So yeah. <laughs> So go ahead. Hey, but you're you're VP at Big Blue though, so that's different, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You're a VP amongst eight hundred thousand there, right? So, no, we uh, yeah. So my my background's in econometrics and math, and so um, I've been the reason I went into business and not in academia is, is very much the title of the show because I wanted to make data simple and useful uh, rather than just, you know, hanging out in my ivory tower, you know, coming up with theories and stuff like that. And so um, after I went, I went to school in Peoria, Illinois, in central Illinois there, a um, small school called Bradley and um, grew up in Wisconsin and ended up, um, first job was basically working in U.S. Intel um, out in D.C. at Fort Meade. Um, and that was that was pretty interesting because that's you know tons of data there and, and you know small data, big data, depending on how you look at it. And um, it was it was one of those jobs that it was probably one of the most fulfilling jobs I've had in my life. But it was you know working for the government, which was which was tough bureaucratically. And ended up at Google in Boston and 
that kind of led to my tech career here and founded ProfitWell about six years ago. Um, and our, our whole focus is basically, you know, in the world of subscriptions and SaaS, there's just all the infrastructure is, you know, about a decade old here, right? And so there's all types of these companies that are, you know, sprouting up every single day. And so what we like to do is, is, is we're trying to help these companies grow by studying them in a very scientific capacity. Um, and that means that we provide free subscription analytics. So you plug in your billing system and basically get your monthly recurring revenue, all your financial metrics. And then we sell products that help them with their pricing using the data as well as sell, you know, help them with their churn, their cancellations as well with the data. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really about that science and using that math to be useful, not just to, you know, look at pretty charts. So what motivates you, speaking of your own starter, you're the co-founder of ProfitWell, what motivated you to say, hey, look, there's a problem to solve, I'm going to solve it, and we're going to create ProfitWell to do so? Yes, that's a really great question. So at Gemvara, which Gemvara was kind of like a Blue Nile, um, which is a jewelry kind of start, uh, technology company. So they did customizable jewelry. So basically um, what they found was, if someone customized the piece of jewelry, like the color of the gemstones, the color of the gold, that type of stuff, um, they basically had a higher willingness to pay as well as like a higher retention and a repeat purchase rate. So this was kind of like the cool thing, like, oh, you can do customized gemstone jewelry and Blue Nile does like customized engagement rings and stuff like that. And so there, one of the big problems was pricing because anything that looked kind of generic, anything you could get from any jewelry store under the sun, like the willingness to pay was low, there wasn't any differentiated value, and anything that was customized, like I said, was was really, really interesting from like a willingness to pay perspective. And so um, I did strategic initiatives, which was like anything from, oh, we need training for the sales reps and customer care reps to, hey, we need a project manager on you know the internal order management system. And so the last project I did was pricing, and I wasn't like a huge fan of, you know, the culture there um you know for startup you know i was kind of like oh this is you know this isn't exactly what i wanted um and so i was like all right there's a time to do this let me jump out and so i was like pricing it's it's one of those things where when you make little adjustments um we would see these big craters or these big gains in revenue and what i started learning just kind of in the research process was pricing something is really really important um we all kind of know it's important um, but in the world of software, especially in the world of subscriptions, most of us, we, we spend all this time and all this effort building these products. And then when it comes to like peg a price to that product, a value to that product, we just kind of throw something out there and, you know, never change it. And we're not very scientific or very data driven for it. And so that's kind of where I, I, I thought there was an opportunity. And so ProfitWell started off specifically um, working on pricing. So we built some algorithms that basically measured um, willingness to pay as well as relative preference for data, uh, different features. Um, and that kind of started the ball rolling of, you know, trying to figure out what we could sell to survive, but also to, uh, you know, make, make people better at their pricing essentially. What do you, what do you, just as a pause, I mean, what do you see in the industry right now? I mean, from my perspective, put my cards on the table. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very interested in this discussion because I think maybe it's obvious, but I don't think it is so obvious to everybody. Is like we are heading to an annuity uh, industry right now, subscription industry, where perpetual licenses uh, are, are limited and we're really a client experience culture. I mean, people want to, I mean, whether it's your iPhone, whether it's, you know, sticking with iPhone, it's iTunes, or you know, it's it's the content you're receiving via Netflix. I mean, if you're you're upset, you know, I I'm out. And I think a client's like that, and I think businesses like that because you know you get a if you as long as you keep your clients happy, 
uh, re, you know, going back to the retention, I know you target, you have some strategies there as well. You know, you're able to keep these clients on for for life, and the gift just keeps on on giving. But I, I think, I mean, I presume that you're really focused on the software as a service. You tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm like, there, there's, you know, I got a buddy, for example, that share that sells uh, big manufacturing machinery, and you know, it's a one-time license thing. I'm saying, you know, at some point in time in the future, and somebody's going to disrupt you as well. And, you know, it's going to be there's, it's going to be more than just a lease. There's going to be more subscription type of offerings that you're going to have to make with this, the, your machines versus just somebody going out and driving all, you know, a one-time purchase. I don't know. I'm getting in the weeds here, but it's kind of oh. interesting. I'd like to get your feel in the industry right now. Yeah, I, I completely agree with basically everything you said. I think the thing is, is that the subscription model is the first business model in our history that basically bakes the relationship directly into how you make money as, as, as a company, right? So exactly what you're talking about. I'm buying this on a subscription basis. Um, and basically what that means is, is that, you know, if, if you are a customer who doesn't see that value anymore, then all of a sudden, like I should, you know, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to cancel. I'm going to churn off of that particular product. And so, yeah, we work with all types of subscription companies from, you know, subscription like, um, you know, box of the month clubs um, to subscription memberships to subscription media and then, and then SaaS and subscription software. And I think that you're seeing subscriptions disrupt even manufacturing in the sense of, you know, Husqvarna tractors and, and lawn tools. Now they have a, a big subscription model where, you know, you don't have to buy that lawn trimmer that you're going to use maybe twice a year for your hedges. Um, you can, you know, just rent it basically, or Caterpillar does this as well. Or, you know, even Rolls-Royce has done this for a long time with their airplane engines where, you know, a big thing that people don't know is that Rolls-Royce owns the actual engines on airliners. Um, they service them completely and, and you're basically charged per mile, which is really interesting. Um, so I think that that's, that's what's really fascinating to me. And there's a little bit of disruption here because, you know, in the, the first age of software in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, you know, people were really used to, okay, I bought this piece of software, I'm going to buy the next version that's, you know, that's, that's up there in terms of development. And now it's like, wait, I have to buy a subscription. So there's going to be a little bit of a friction point and not everything is suited to a subscription, but um, that recurring revenue is, is great for business. And I, I think it gets to that customer and that cost, that company to a point of equilibrium a lot quicker than, than other business models. Do you help with clients? Do you help with this determination whether, hey, you know, stick with Perpetual for a while, you know, it doesn't make sense because, you know, you may encounter uh, revenue erosion or something in making the transition. Yeah. You make those mo do you drive those models as well? Yeah, we help, a, we help quite a few folks with that because what's interesting in those, those particular problems is that you'll have situations where switching from Perpetual to a subscription model instantly is actually the best decision. And then you'll have other situations where the uh, the customer base is so entrenched in a perpetual license that you need to kind of transition very slowly. So what that means is you need to provide incentives to go to the subscription model um, and then slowly start raising the price on the perpetual license. And then all of a sudden the perpetual license becomes a very premium product where the holdouts who are really, really stalwarts about owning the software, or maybe they need to own the software for, you know, other reasons. They're the ones who, who basically are willing to pay. And so it's been, it's been interesting working with folks like Autodesk and there's some other niche providers of perpetual software and seeing, you know, how they're able to kind of, you know, transition that, that world. So can you give me maybe an example of like, I mean, 
of, of one that you would instantly you say, look, you got to make this switch, and here's why you got to make this switch, that maybe the audience wouldn't immediately think of? Like, you know, if you're a startup, yeah, start up with, with subscription. That makes sense. But any other say, examples that you'd give that with your experience, you'd say, look, this, this client, by example, didn't think it was a good idea. We made the immediate switch, and look what happened. Got it. Yeah, I think... I don't know if I have one that, that isn't immediately coming to mind. I think Microsoft Office was actually like a really good example. Um, I think that um, there was definitely people who kind of whined and you know were, were troublesome for it. And I also think Adobe, when they made um, Photoshop and the digital cloud, um, that was actually a really a, a bigger no-brainer because the you can see it in the release cycle of the features that they're releasing, right? And you can also see it in the customers that came after the price change, right? So for Adobe, all of a sudden the student market opened up a lot more because they can pay 50 bucks a month, but paying, you know, $1,000 or more for a license at one time is actually too much cash. And so, yeah, those are some, some good examples, but yeah, I can rack my brain a little bit more. Um, I think some of the, some of the kind of cosmetics and, um, like Dollar Shave Club and some of these other companies like that have done subscription razors or subscription, you know, lotions and things like that. That one isn't as obvious, I think. A lot of people are like, well, why do I need this? And it's like, well, the, the millennial generation in particular and Gen Z coming after them, like this convenience factor as well as, you know, not wanting to use more than they need and all that other stuff has been a pretty big selling point to those customer bases and it's worked out really well. I presume you tailor your solution in the way you pitch your solution to your audience. Like you mentioned, like whether it's a millennial audience or whether it's an established client, I bet there's different mindsets that you're going to have to work and mold as you're, you're trying to make this transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Selling, selling to CAD developers, uh, that's a, that's a tough world uh, just because there, there, there's a, a big group of folks, right? You know, selling to millennials, you know, shaving cream and, and razors, it's, it's not as tough as, uh, you know, it's not as tough as the CAD developers, let's just say. So talk to me about the tech behind it. And, and I, I'm thinking in two different areas, and, and you can add or, or correct me, but that's the monetization and then the retention, and maybe if there's a third, it goes back to just making your overall business go to market digital. Uh, it sounds like you do all three of those. Uh, on the monetization, and again, correct me if I'm wrong when you jump in, but in the monetization, you know, can you kind of talk to a, a client engagement and, you know, how you get the tech behind it and, and you know, what, what the process is like? Yeah, you're trying to make me sell you, it sounds like, Al. Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah, sell it. No, I'm just kidding. Sell no, 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 I'm just kidding. Yeah, so, yeah, for the monetization side, basically, um, what we do is we have we have some core technology that, like I mentioned, it measures price elasticity, which is, for those folks who don't know, um, you know, or can't think back to their, you know, high school econ class, it's basically if you change your price, what's going to be the relative gain or loss in the customer base? Um, and then the relative preference for, like, features. So, you know, do they like API out or do they like single sign-on, those types of things. And what we do is we combine that and, and we basically use those those two algorithms to essentially do a whole host of things. Um, and the, the, the bigger thing is, is we first attack and understand their personas. So we have to understand who you're selling to. And, and you'd be surprised at how many people don't understand who they're actually selling to. My favorite thing is to walk in and talk to a CEO of a you know, a company that's raised $150 million and say, oh, who, who are your customers? And they go, developers. 
You're like, oh, what kind of developers? Oh, like all developers. And you're like, hold on a second. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. Maybe that's who you want to go after, but you got to focus a little bit because you got to get some efficiencies out of your investment. And so once we understand who those, those people they're targeting are, then all of a sudden we go into um, doing studies on their pricing, then studies on their packaging, then their value metrics. And it depends on the company. Some folks have some of the stuff figured out really well. Others have nothing figured out, and we have to go from scratch. But basically, we work with them and collect this data for them. Um, on the retention side, that's, that's a different story. Um, that's a pure software product where we basically, um, right now, we have about 25% of the entire subscription market using our ProfitWell product, which is um, the free subscription financial metrics product. And so that data that we have there is, is, is a big enough data set um, that it's really interesting to apply machine learning, some algorithms, things like that against, especially to understand like why a credit card fails. Um, so we have the metadata from like 800 million credit cards on file at this point, which is pretty cool. And so our retention solution attacks delinquent credit cards and basically does that by predicting when and how a credit card will fail. And then we have a couple of things, whether it's a message or an email that goes out to get that user to basically update their credit card. And at this point, um, and we haven't found data that disputed this and we searched for it, um, we actually have you know the best recovery rate out there. And so that's what our retention solution does. And we have some other products, but you know those, those are the two big ones that we have right now that we sell. Is it really product-based in all cases, or do you also recommend, like on the retention side, if you're dealing with SaaS, do you, you know, the concept in the industry or methodology is to have CSMs, uh, client uh, success managers, that work on deployment, and you set up that infrastructure for a client that's never done that before, or do you leave that to them? Yeah, that's a great question. So we we basically focus on the for the retention products in particular if you have a heavy csm product meaning your arpu is a thousand dollars or more um, that product probably isn't great for you um, we're starting to go into the voluntary churn space so people actively canceling um, and that's when we'll start helping those types of folks but Right now, we wanted to start with the purely mechanical problem, which was delinquent churn, and now we're going to start going after you know, the thousand paper cuts of why people cancel products, and we're going to take as many of them off the plate of, of those CSMs as possible, and then give those CSMs a bunch of data around predicting who's going to churn and who's going to cancel so that they can reach out either um, kind of automatically through engagement emails or just directly through calling that client. Sounds like you bring the kind of the the statistical model, models to the table to be able to help them with some of the answers. You let them write the answers. I imagine there's some there's some some sharing of information in there, but you're really into you know giving some of the answers that they don't know that uh, answers that to questions maybe they don't even have yet. Is essentially yeah. Well, if you doing. think about like the history of data, right? And so the first wave of data was like, hey, let's just collect everything, right? let's collect all this data. And then it was like, let's get this data in some way that we can structure it and look at it, right? And that's reporting and BI. And now th this next wave is very insights, right? Where it's like, okay, we have a bunch of this data, we have a bunch of graphs, that's cool, but I want you to tell me what graph or what customer to look at. And what we're more obsessed with is like the next stage, which is outcomes, which is why retain, like it does it all for you. So in that way, we don't, we like yes there's reporting and you can see what's going on but we actually 
we have all the engagement emails triggered and we do all the beta testing and the A-B tests and all that kind of stuff. And yes, we still have an insight element of like, hey, you should talk to this user, but we're trying to basically skip to outcomes as quickly as possible rather than just giving insights. But as you kind of implied before, it's going to be tough in some cases because if you have a 5,000 you know, per month customer, we want to tell you that there's a problem and then you, we want you to handle that outreach because that's a very, very high value customer. So Patrick, you know, one question I had for you is, is this, do you find yourself solving problems in public cloud or the, is it private cloud in, in, the, in essence, you know, behind the firewall um, equal fertile ground? I mean, are you getting those, those deals too, or are you, are you working in both sides of the cloud? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, yeah, it, for us, it's, it's less about the um, it's less about the, the the cloud like private public um, even perpetual like I was kind of saying and it's more about the actual um, you know revenue model right so we kind of go where, wherever the revenue model is subscription or recurring revenue or kind of that focus that's that's pretty much where we go in order to to help those folks. All right, fair enough. Hey, look, I've got some other questions I want to ask you kind of personally, like I try to end. It's kind of what I call the lightning round, but I want to make sure that, <laughs> I want to make sure we've done profit well justice. First of all, where should uh, the audience go to get more information? Yeah, just profitwell.com. Um, the, don't go for two weeks, though, because our new website's coming out. No, I'm just kidding. Probably, probably by the time this is published, it'll already be the new website, and so we, we're kind of changing up our branding and things like that. Um, or you can reach me at Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and I'm always always willing to help folks who, who have questions around pricing, the subscription world, anything like that. So um, tell us a little bit about your – got a video series called Profit or Protect the Hustle. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What is this? Can you tell the audience about this? Yeah, totally. So we um, we actually it's, it's it's probably worth another podcast here. I don't know if it's on this show, but uh, we um, we do a lot in content. So we actually have multiple different video and um, blog series that we do um, around one's called pricing page teardown, where we tear down people's pricing pages with data um, in in a constructive way, not just being mean. And we were, we're mostly positive, actually. Um, another one's a benchmarking show called Profitable Report. And then Protect the Hustle is a show that we do uh, where we interview kind of leaders in the subscription space. So uh, Patty McCord from Netflix, Brian Halligan from HubSpot, um, good group of folks. And, and we basically use that as a way to, to kind of understand um, you know, and learn about how these people have been successful, things that they made in terms of mistakes and, and kind of cranking along. Wow, I'm gonna to have to check it out, and you know, we may have to do the follow-up with the podcast. I'm, 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 I'm all in. Uh, also, you did AmeriCorps when you were in college. Is that, is that a passion yeah. of yours? Wow, yeah, you're digging deep there. Yeah, I've, I've always been a, um, yeah, I've been, I've been a big like uh, advocate of, you know, I think that kind of like a lot of folks, you know, who, who've, you know, done, done a lot of work with stuff is, is, is kind of helping out other people, right? Uh, so I did AmeriCorps. I did that at a uh, children's home in Peoria, Illinois, just kind of helping with, um, you know, making it better and, and you know, basically, um, you know, working with, you know, un, um, you know, folks who, who, you know, needed needed help essentially. Um, but I also ran a, a nonprofit, a small nonprofit in uh, college that was focused on basically helping 
mostly kind of morphed into helping a lot of nonprofit organizations with like getting data to do grant writing uh, because grant writing has become so data driven. And so, yeah, just I like to give back. Um, it's, it's something good. So you're still doing this? You're you're still a leader in that, or? Uh, no, not as not as much anymore. Um, you know, I, I I try to help in kind of um, non-committal ways, if that makes sense. So like, you know, you're, like lead, so, you're you're CEO of a business now. Yeah. You so I like so one. Yeah, we do, but we do a lot with um. You know, we do a lot of like one-time events, right? Like, um, I don't do anything consistently right now because I just don't want to let people down. Like, I, I'd love to do like Big Brothers, but. You know, it's just one of those things where I, I that would be the worst to let down, you know, a kid in need. Um, and so I just want to make sure that I'm always there for, for the folks that I can be. Another, see, I, I am digging deep because there's some interesting things. You did, you served as an intelligence analyst fellow with the Department of Defense? Yeah, yeah, that was that was when I worked in the intel community. So I worked, I actually, yeah, I worked at NSA. Um, so that was, uh, I joke, I, I had Jack Ryan's job, but without any of the like out of office stuff, only the <laughs> office job that he had. So yeah, I was just an Intel analyst. It was, it, like I said, it was one of the most fulfilling, you know, jobs in my life just cause you were, you know, you were helping, you know, like helping the mission of our country in a lot of different ways. And, and that was, that was great. Right, pre so Snowden. That was pre Snowden though. That should, yeah. I should note that. Yeah. <laughs> that does make a difference. You know, I, I go, I travel to China and I still ask that question. I'll be sitting there with a, a, a bunch of uh, Chinese execs, and obviously, for obvious reasons, they're very concerned about that. You know, they, they talk about what my thoughts are on Snowden. I'm like, uh, I have no thoughts on Snowden. I mean, I, they're, they're not involved with any of my products, whatever. But, you know, it's, it is, it's, a, it's a big issue outside of the U.S. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of, the, 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 issue, the, the funny issue is, like, the, the government can't, confirm or deny anything right and and that's that's what makes it difficult i i will say that when you look at just the laws um the a lot of what kind of like like there is a very clear debate around who owns metadata how long can things be stored like that is a very very valid debate to have and there's there's good arguments on both sides depending on what you're prioritizing i think my big issue with the whole debate was like You'd have journalists then just take this to three layers deeper to, oh, they're spying on you in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and things like that. And it's like, no, like th there was there was a lot of problems because there's like with, you know, certain goals in the intelligence community strictly because, you know, there are clear laws about, you know, anyone with a green card or an American citizen or whomever um, in terms of like, you know, can they can they be um, you know spied on essentially? And the answer is no, without you know a warrant. And so, yeah, I, that was my biggest issue with that whole thing is like the debate should have been had. And um, my other issue, and again, I'm probably going to get flack for this, but maybe it makes it entertaining. Is uh, you know, my whole thing is, um, you know, there the guy didn't use any of the whistleblower like um, channels. Uh, so one of the things they do is they train you on like see something, say something. As, as an employee. Um, and, you know, the big thing is, is like everything's so compartmentalized because that's, that helps with security. And, you know, there's posters everywhere. Hey, if you see something, you know, here's the, here's the number directly to Congress, basically. Um, and it was something you were trained on constantly and just reminded of because, you know, you want to make sure people aren't leaking stuff and you want to make sure that people are like doing their jobs. Right. And so that was, that was kind of my biggest issue is that the, you know, he didn't use those channels and, 
you know, you can make an argument, well, you know, those channels wouldn't have worked. And it's like, ah, I don't know. Like Congress loves to investigate the intelligence community because of, you know, privacy and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't know. That was not to get too political, but I, I think, again, it's a very, it's a very valid. You like to put it out on the edge. That's okay. Yeah. No, it's like, again, it's a very, very valid debate. And it's a very, very important debate. Um, it's just one of those things where the way that, that, the debate came up, I think was, it actually tainted the ability to have the conversation because everyone's like, oh, like, you know, they're spying on us. You know, that's wrong. And it's like, it's so much more complicated than that, but the government can't really say anything because of... Are you, you know, sure in the case that if, if I use one of those channels, I like disappear, never to be seen? Well, yeah, I mean, right, like, it's kind of like, you know, that's... Yeah, I mean, I can't guarantee that, but I'm, you know, again, there's there's rights and laws for a reason, and so, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely been whistleblowers that that have, um, you know, been been paid very handsomely for what they've done, and you know, have received, um, you know, medals of freedom and stuff like that, and so, yeah, it's one of those things. That's why we have checks and balances in in America. But this isn't a political podcast, so I don't want to go too too deep. <laughs> that's all right. Like, I often say, look, we have topics, we have making data simple, but you know, this is more potpourri or, or a you know uh, talk soup than anything else. Hey, totally, I do totally. want to finish. I never. Re- I want to get to the real meat of the lightning round. And what I do here is, sure. I ask you a question. Just give me like a you know a, a short response. quick answer. Yeah, quick answer. Yep. So what do you do for fun, man? <laughs> that's that's my answer. A big laugh. No, I uh, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to get back in shape. So I, I hang out with my dog. I go to the gym. Um, hang out with my uh, my significant other, Jenny, and yeah, we we tra- we like to travel a lot, which is good. That is good. Yeah, these are kind of the questions I like to ask those that are uh, you know leading companies because uh, and it leads me to the next one. You'll understand why. So how. You know, if you're CEO, you're trying to get this company going, uh, you know, and it, it's a relentless pursuit for you. How do you drive that work-life balance? How do you actually have some fun? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't really believe in work-life balance. I, I believe in, um, that doesn't mean like I'm a workaholic. I am a workaholic, though. I think it, it's more like I like to manage energy. So there's some weeks where I'm, you know, busting my butt for 90, 100 hours a week, and then the next week I'm working 30. Um, I think it's just balancing the the energy levels is more important. But I'm I'm kind of I'm all in if that makes sense. What are you most proud of? Oh Jesus, what a crazy question. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, I'm most proud. I think I'm um, I think I'm most proud of our entire team. There's no one here on this team that I wouldn't want to take to dinner with my parents. Um, yeah, I think everyone here is like a really upstanding person, and and that's hard at 60 people. Um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we've done a, I think we've done a really good job on you know keeping the team at, at a nice high level. That's actually a pretty damn good answer. Maybe the best answer I've I've seen for that one. You know, it, it you know it's a testament to success if you're comfortable bringing somebody home to meet your mother. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Well, you don't know my mother, so maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> That's, a <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. What is the best leadership advice you've ever received? Oh, man. Um, the best advice, I think it's, I mean, there's a lot of really good ones. I think the best advice that's helped me the most is that nothing's, like very few things um, are binary. Um, you know, very, very few things are binary. Um, you know, even even like like think of any like disagreement you've had in the office. Like I would say, ninety percent of them, it's because someone's like, "Well, we can't ever do this, or we'll never do that, or or that's the only thing we'll do." And in reality, it's like, no, 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 no. Like we will, 
you know, we will do that under these circumstances or we won't do that under these circumstances. Um, there's very, very few things that are purely binary and, and most of those that are purely binary are, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the legal and the, you know, the harassment ones, if that makes sense. So what's up next for you, man? Um, scaling. Yeah, we, um, we are now, we have the foundation built. Um, we've proven product market fit on a number of products and now it's just, Hey, let's blow these out of the water. So last year we spent a, a good part of the year basically building out our growth team and, now we're heading in a direction of, you know, basically uh, making stuff happen with uh, with scaling. And so, yeah, that's what's up next. Patrick, you're a great guest. Uh, I can tell Thanks, you that you're going to be extremely successful. I'm going to go check out Protect the Hustle as well. We'll we'll, we'll get you back on. But uh, thank you for being here. This has been great. I've learned a lot. Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate the time and uh, enjoy that barbecue out there. <laughs> I'm glad, hey, next time you're in Kansas City, please, please look me up. We'll do the barbecue together. Oh, man, be careful because that might be a long night. <laughs> well, we can drink beer, eat barbecue. There you go. get better than that. That's what you do in Kansas City. I love it. I love it. All right, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'll talk to you next time, man. Thank you. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple Podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out. Out.